Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, another story from one of my very favorite authors, O. Henry. This one called Girl. Hope you enjoy it. In gilt letters on the ground glass of the door of room number 962 were the words Robbins and Hartley Brokers. The clerks had gone. It was past five, and with the solid tramp of a drove of prize Pergerons, scrub women were invading the cloud-capped, 20-story office building. A puff of red-hot air flavored with lemon peelings, soft coal smoke, and train oil came in through the half-open windows. Robbins, 50, something of an overweight beau, and addicted to first nights and hotel palm rooms, pretended to be envious of his partner's commuter's joys. "'Going to be something doing in the humidity line tonight,' he said. "'You out-of-town chaps will be the people, "'with your katydids and moonlight and long drinks "'and things out on the front porch.' "'Hartley, 29, serious, thin, good-looking, nervous, "'sighed and frowned a little. "'Yes,' said he. "'We always have cool nights in Floralhurst, "'especially in the winter.' "'A man with an air of mystery came in the door "'and went up to Hartley.' "'I found where she lives,' he announced in the portentous half-whisper that makes the detective at work a marked being to his fellow men. Hartley scowled him into a state of dramatic silence and quietude. But by that time, Robinson got his cane and set his tie pin to his liking, and with a debonair nod went out to his metropolitan amusements. "'Here is the address,' said the detective in a natural tone, being deprived of an audience to foil." Hartley took the leaf torn out of the sluice dingy memorandum book. On it were penciled the words, Vivian Arlington, number 341 East 7th Street, care of Mrs. McComas. Moved there a week ago, said the detective. Now, if you want any shadowing done, Mr. Hartley, I can do you as fine a job in that line as anybody in the city. It will be only $7 a day, plus expenses. Can send it in a daily typewritten report covering... You needn't go on interrupted the broker. It isn't a case of that kind. I merely wanted the address. How much shall I pay you? One day's work, said the sleuth. A tenor will cover it. Hartley paid the man and dismissed him. Then he left the office and boarded a Broadway car. At his first large cross-town artery of travel, he took an eastbound car that deposited him in a decaying avenue whose ancient structures once sheltered the pride and glory of the town. Walking a few squares, he came to the building that he sought. It was a new flat house, bearing carved upon its cheap stone portal its sonorous name, the Vallombrosa. Fire escapes zigzagged down its front. These laden with household goods, drying clothes, and squalling children evicted by the midsummer heat. Here and there, a pale rubber plant peeped from the miscellaneous mass, as if wondering to what kingdom it belonged, vegetable, animal, or artificial. Hartley pressed the McComas button. The door latch clicked spasmodically, now hospitably, now doubtfully, as though in anxiety whether it might be admitting friends or duns. Hartley entered and began to climb the stairs after the manner of those who seek their friends in city flathouses, which is the manner of a boy who climbs an apple tree, stopping when he comes upon what he wants. On the fourth floor he saw Vivian standing in an open door. She invited him inside, with a nod and a bright, genuine smile. 
she placed a chair for him near a window, and poised herself gracefully upon the edge of one of those Jekyll and Hyde pieces of furniture that are masked and mysteriously hooded. Unguessable bulks by day, and inquisitorial racks of torture by night. Hardly cast a quick, critical, appreciative glance at her before speaking, and told himself that his taste in choosing had been flawless. Vivian was about twenty-one. She was of the purest Saxon type. Her hair was a ruddy golden, each filament of the neatly gathered mass shining with its own luster and delicate graduation of color. In perfect harmony were her ivory-clear complexion and deep sea-blue eyes that looked upon the world with the ingenuous calmness of a mermaid or the pixie of an undiscovered mountain stream. Her frame was strong and yet possessed a grace of absolute naturalness. And yet with all her northern clearness and frankness of line and coloring, there seemed to be something of the tropics in her, something of languor in the droop of her pose, of love of ease in her ingenious complacency of satisfaction, and comfort in the mere act of breathing, something that seemed to claim for her a right as a perfect work of nature to exist, and to be admired equally with a rare flower or some beautiful milk-white dove among its sober-hued companions. She was dressed in a white waist and dark skirt, the discreet masquerade of Goose Girl and Duchess. Vivian, said Hartley, looking at her pleadingly, you did not answer my last letter. It was only by nearly a week's search that I found where you had moved to. Why have you kept me in suspense when you know how anxiously I was waiting to see you and hear from you? The girl looked out the window dreamily. Mr. Hartley, she said hesitatingly, I hardly know what to say to you. I realize all the advantages of your offer, and sometimes I feel sure that I could be contented with you. But again, I am doubtful. I was born a city girl, and I am afraid to bind myself to a quiet suburban life. My dear girl, said Hartley, ardently, have I not told you that you shall have everything that your heart can desire that is in my power to give you? You shall come to the city for theaters, for shopping, and to visit your friends as often as you care to. You can trust me, can you not? To the fullest, she said, turning her frank eyes upon him with a smile. I know you are the kindest of men, and that the girl you get will be a lucky one. I learned all about you when I was at the Montgomery's. Ah! exclaimed Hartley, with a tender, reminiscent light in his eye. I remember well the evening I first saw you at the Montgomery's. Mrs. Montgomery was sounding your praises to me all evening, and she hardly did you justice. I shall never forget that supper. Come, Vivian, promise me. I want you. You'll never regret coming with me. No one else will ever give you as pleasant a home. The girl sighed and looked down at her folded hands. A sudden jealous suspicion seized Hartley. "'Tell me, Vivian,' he asked, regarding her keenly. "'Is there another? Is there someone else?' A rosy flush crept slowly over her fair cheeks and neck. "'You shouldn't ask that, Mr. Hartley,' she said, in some confusion. "'But I will tell you. There is one other. But he has no right. I have promised him nothing.' "'His name,' demanded Hartley, sternly. "'Townsend!' "'Rafford Townsend?' exclaimed Hartley, with a grim tightening of his jaw. "'How did that man come to know you, after all I've done for him?' 
"'His auto has just stopped below,' said Vivian, "'bending over the window-sill. "'He's coming for his answer. "'Oh, I don't know what to do.' "'The bell in the flat kitchen whirred. "'Vivian hurried to press the latch button. "'Stay here,' said Hartley. "'I will meet him in the hall.' "'Townsend, looking like a Spanish grandee "'in his light tweeds, Panama hat, "'and curling black moustache, "'came up the stairs three at a time. "'He stopped at the sight of Hartley "'and looked foolish. "'Go back,' said Hartley, firmly, "'pointing downstairs with his forefinger. "'Hello,' said Townsend, "'feigning surprise. "'What's up? "'What are you doing here, old man?' "'Go back,' repeated Hartley, inflexibly. "'The law of the jungle. "'Do you want the pack to tear you to pieces? "'The kill is mine.' "'I came here to see a plumber about a bathroom connection,' said Townsend bravely. "'All right,' said Hartley. "'You shall have that lying plaster to stick upon your traitorous soul. "'But go back.' Townsend went downstairs, leaving a bitter word to be wafted up the draft of the staircase. Hartley went back to his wooing. "'Vivian,' said he, masterfully, "'I have got to have you. "'I will take no more refusals or dilly-dallying.' "'When do you want me?' she asked. "'Now, as soon as you can get ready.' She stood calmly before him and looked him in the eye. "'Do you think for one moment,' she said, "'that I would enter your home while, while Heloise is there?' Hartley cringed as if from an unexpected blow. He folded his arms and paced the carpet once or twice. "'She shall go,' he declared grimly. "'Drop stood upon his brow. "'Why should I let that woman make my life miserable? "'Never have I seen one day of freedom from trouble since I've known her. "'You are right, Vivian. "'Heloise must be sent away before I could take you home. "'But she shall go. "'I have decided. "'I will turn her from my doors.' "'When will you do this?' asked the girl. "'Hartley clinched his teeth and bent his brows together. "'Tonight,' he said, "'Resolutely. I will send her away to-night.' "'Then,' said Vivian, "'my answer is yes. Come for me when you will.' She looked into his eyes with a sweet, sincere light in her own. Hartley could scarcely believe that her surrender was true. It was so swift and complete. "'Promise me,' he said feelingly, "'on your word and honor.' "'On my word and honor,' repeated Vivian, softly." At the door he turned and gazed at her happily, but yet as one who scarcely trusts the foundations of his joy. Tomorrow, he said, with a forefinger of reminder uplifted. Tomorrow, she repeated, with a smile of truth and candor. In an hour and forty minutes, Hartley stepped off the train at Floralhurst. A brisk walk of ten minutes brought him to the gate of a handsome two-story cottage set upon a wide and well-tended lawn. Halfway to the house, he was met by a woman with jet-black braided hair and flowing white summer gown, who half-strangled him without apparent cause. When they stepped into the hall, she said, "'Mama's here. The auto is coming for her in half an hour. She came to dinner, but there's no dinner.' "'I've something to tell you,' said Hartley. "'I thought to break it to you gently, but since your mother is here, we may as well out with it.' He stooped and whispered something at her ear. His wife screamed. 
Her mother came running into the hall. The dark-haired woman screamed again, the joyful scream of a well-beloved and petted woman. Oh, Mama, she cried ecstatically. What do you think? Vivian is coming to cook for us. She is the one who stayed with the Montgomerys a whole year. And now, Billy, dear, she concluded, you must go right down into the kitchen and discharge Heloise. She's been drunk again the whole day long. A great short story by O. Henry, which really reminds us of our hasty inclinations to jump to conclusions based on false assumptions. Hope you enjoyed it. But first, we'll take a short break for our sponsor messages. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers, as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special limited-time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001STORIES at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001STORIES at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. And now our second story by O. Henry, Jeff Peters as a personal magnet. Jeff Peters has been engaged in as many schemes for making money as there are recipes for cooking rice in Charleston, South Carolina. Best of all, I like to hear him tell of his earlier days when he sold liniments and cough cures on street corners, living hand-to-mouth, heart-to-heart with the people, throwing heads or tails with fortune for his last coin. "'I struck Fisher Hill, Arkansas,' said he, in a buckskin suit, moccasins, Long hair and a 30 carat diamond ring that I got from an actor in Texarkana. I don't know what he ever did with the pocket knife I swapped him for it. I was Dr. Waghoo, the celebrated Indian medicine man. I carried only one best bet just then, and that was resurrection bitters. It was made of life giving plants and herbs accidentally discovered by Takwata, the beautiful wife of the chief of the Choctaw Nation while gathering truck to garnish a platter of boiled dog for the annual corn dance. Business hadn't been good in the last town, so I only had five dollars. I went to the Fisher Hill druggist, and he credited me for half a gross of eight-ounce bottles and corks. I had the labels and ingredients in my valise, left over from the last town. Life began to look rosy again after I got in my hotel room with the water running from the tap and the resurrection bitters lining up on the table by the dozen. Fake? No, sir. There was two dollars worth of fluid extract of chichona and a dime's worth of aniline in that half-gross of bitters. I've gone through towns years afterwards and had folks ask for him again. 
I hired a wagon that night and commenced selling the bitters on Main Street. Fisher Hill was a low, malarial town, and a compound, hypothetical, pneumocardiac, antisorbutic tonic was just what I diagnosed the crowd as needing. The bitters started off like sweetbreads on toast at a vegetarian dinner. I had sold two dozen at fifty cents apiece when I felt somebody pull my coattail. I knew what that meant, so I climbed down and sneaked a five-dollar bill into the hand of a man with a German silver star on his label. Constable, says I, it's a fine night. Have you got a city license, he asks, to sell this illegitimate essence of spoo-jew that you flatter by the name of medicine? I have not, says I. I didn't know you had a city. If I could find it tomorrow, I'll take one out if it's necessary. I'll have to close you up till you do, says the constable. I quit selling and went back to the hotel. I was talking to the landlord about it. Oh, you won't stand no show in Fisher Hill, says he. Dr. Hoskins, the only doctor here, is a brother-in-law of the mayor, and they won't allow no fake doctor to practice in town. I don't practice medicine, says I. I've got a state peddler's license, and I take out a city one whenever they demand it. I went to the mayor's office the next morning, and they told me he hadn't showed up yet. They didn't know when he'd be down. So Doc Wahoo hunches down again in a hotel chair and lights a Jimson weed regalia and waits. By and by, a young man in a blue necktie slips into the chair next to me and asks the time. Half past ten, says I, and you are Andy Tucker. I've seen you work. Wasn't it you that put up that great Cupid combination package on the southern states? Let's see. It was a Chilean diamond engagement ring, a wedding ring, a potato masher, a bottle of soothing syrup, and Dorothy Vernon, all for 50 cents. Andy was pleased to hear that I remembered him. He was a good street man, and he was more than that. He respected his profession, and he was satisfied with 300% profit. He had plenty of offers to go into the illegitimate drug and garden seed business, but he was never to be tempted off the straight path. Well, I wanted a partner, so Andy and me agreed to go out together. I told him about the situation in Fisher Hill and how finances was low on account of that local mixture of politics and JLAP. Andy had just got in on the train that morning. He was pretty low himself and was going to canvass the whole town for a few dollars to build a new battleship by popular subscription at Eureka Springs. So we went out and sat on the porch and talked it over. The next morning at 11 o'clock, when I was sitting there alone, and Uncle Tom shuffles into the hotel and asks for the doctor to come and see Judge Banks, who, it seems, was the mayor and a mighty sick man. I'm no doctor, says I. Why don't you go and get the doctor? Boss, says he, Doc Hoskins has gone 20 miles in the country to see some sick persons. He's the only doctor in the town, and Mayor Banks is powerful bad off. He sent me to ask you to please, sir, come. As man to man, says I, I'll go and look him over. So I put a bottle of resurrection bitters in my pocket and goes up on the hill to the mayor's mansion, the finest house in town, with a mansard roof and two cast-iron dogs on the lawn. The mayor Banks was in bed all but his whiskers and feet. He was making internal noises that would have had everybody in San Francisco hiking for the parks. A young man was standing by the bed, holding a cup of water. Doc, says the mayor, I'm awful sick. I'm about to die. Can't you do nothing for me? 
"'Mr. Mayor,' says I, "'I'm not a regular preordained disciple of S.Q. Lapius. "'I never took a course in a medical college,' says I. "'I've just come as a fellow man to see if I could be of assistance.' "'I'm deeply obliged,' says he. "'Doc Wahoo, this is my nephew, Mr. Biddle. "'He has tried to alleviate my distress, but without success.' "'Oh, Lordy! Ow! Oh, ow!' he sings out. "'So I nods at Mr. Biddle and sits down by the bed and feels the mayor's pulse. "'Let me see your liver—your tongue, I mean,' says I. "'Then I turns up the lids of his eyes and looks close at the pupils of him. "'How long you been sick?' I asked. "'I was taken down—ow!—last night,' says the mayor. "'Give me something for it, Doc, won't you?' "'Mr. Fiddle,' says I, "'raise the window shade a bit, will you?' "'Biddle,' says the young man. "'Do you feel like you could eat some ham and eggs, Uncle James?' "'Mr. Mayor,' says I, "'after laying my ear to his right shoulder-blade and listening, "'you got a bad attack of super-inflammation "'of the right clavicle of the harpsichord.' "'Good Lord!' says he, with a groan. "'Can't you rub something on it, or set it, or anything?' I picks up my hat and starts for the door. "'You ain't going, Doc,' says the mayor with a howl. "'You ain't going away and leave me to die with this superfluity of the clappers, are you?' "'Common humanity, Dr. Woaha,' says Mr. Biddle, "'ought to prevent your deserting a fellow human in distress. "'Dr. Wahoo, when you get through plowing,' says I. "'And then I walks back to the bed and throws back my long hair.' "'Mr. Mayor,' says I, "'there's only one hope for you. "'Drugs would do you no good. "'But there is another power higher yet, "'although drugs are high enough,' says I. "'And what is that?' says he. "'Scientific demonstrations,' says I, "'the triumph of mind over sarsaparilla. "'The belief that there's no pain and sickness "'except what is produced when we ain't feeling well. "'Declare yourself in arrears. "'Demonstrate.' "'What is this paraphernalia you speak of, Doc?' says the mayor. "'You ain't a socialist, are you?' "'I am speaking,' says I, "'of the great doctrine of psychic financiering, "'of the enlightened school of long distance, "'subconscientious treatment of fallacies and meningitis, "'of that wonderful indoor sport known as personal magnetism.' "'Can you work it, Doc?' says the mayor." "'I'm one of the sole Samhedrins and ostensible hooplas of the inner pulpit,' says I. "'The lame talk and blind rubber whenever I make a pass at him. "'I am a medium, a coloratory hypnotist, and a spirituous control. "'It was only through one of the recent seances at Ann Arbor "'that the late president of the Vinegar Bitters Company "'could revisit the earth to communicate with his sister Jane. "'You see me peddling menace on the street,' says I, "'to the poor.' "'I don't practice personal magnetism on them. "'I do not drag it in the dust,' says I, "'because they haven't got the dust.' "'Will you treat my case?' asks the mayor. "'Listen,' says I, "'I've had a good deal of trouble with medical societies "'everywhere I've been. "'I don't practice medicine. "'But, to save your life, "'I'll give you the psychic treatment "'if you'll agree as mayor "'not to push the license question.' "'Of course I will.' says he. Now get to work, Doc. 
"'for them pains are coming on again. "'My fee will be two hundred and fifty dollars, "'cure guaranteed in two treatments,' says I. "'All right,' says the mayor. "'I'll pay it. "'I guess my life's worth that much.' "'I sat down by the bed "'and looked him straight in the eye. "'Now,' says I, "'get your mind off the disease. "'You ain't sick. "'You haven't got a heart or a clavicle "'or a funny bone or brains or anything.' "'You haven't got any pain. "'Declare error. "'Now you feel the pain that you didn't have leaving, don't you?' "'I do feel some little better, Doc,' says the mayor. "'Damned if I don't. "'Now state a few lies about my not having this swelling in my left side, "'and I think I can be propped up and have some sausage and buckwheat cakes.' "'I made a few passes over him with my hands. "'Now,' says I, "'The inflammation's gone. "'The right lobe of the perhelion has subsided. "'You're getting sleepy. "'You can't hold your eyes open any longer. "'For the present, the disease is checked. "'Now you are asleep.' "'The mayor shut his eyes slowly and began to snore. "'You observe, Mr. Tittle,' says I, "'the wonders of modern science.' "'Biddle,' says he. When will you give Uncle the rest of the treatment, Dr. Poo-Poo? Wahoo, says I. I'll come back at eleven tomorrow. When he wakes up, give him eight drops of turpentine and three pounds of steak. Good morning. The next morning I was back on time. Well, Mr. Riddle, says I, when he opened the bedroom door, and how is Uncle this morning? He seems much better, says the young man. The mayor's color and pulse was fine. I gave him another treatment, and he said the last of the pain left him. Now, says I, you better stay in bed for a day or two, and you'll be all right. It's a good thing I happen to be in Fisher Hill, Mr. Mayor, says I, for all the remedies in the cornucopia that the regular schools of medicine use couldn't have saved you. And now that error has flew, and pain proved a perjurer, let's allude to the cheerfuller subject, say, the fee of two-fifty. "'No checks, please. "'I hate to write my name on the back of a check "'almost as bad as I do on the front.' "'I've got the cash here,' says the mayor, "'pulling a pocketbook from under his pillow. "'He counts out five fifty-dollar notes "'and holds them in his hand. "'Bring the receipt,' he says to Biddle. "'I signed the receipt, and the mayor handed me the money. "'I put it in my inside pocket carefully. "'Now, do your duty, officer,' says the mayor. "'grinning much unlike a sick man. "'Mr. Biddle lays his hand on my arm. "'You're under arrest, Dr. Wahoo, alias Peters,' says he, "'for practicing medicine without authority under the state law.' "'Who are you?' I asks. "'I'll tell you who he is,' said Mr. Mayor, sitting up in bed. "'He's a detective employed by the State Medical Society. "'He's been following you over the five counties.' "'He came to me yesterday, and we fixed up this scheme to catch you. "'I guess you won't do any more doctoring around these parts, Mr. Faker. "'What was it you said I had, Doc?' the mayor laughs. "'Compound. Well, it wasn't softening to the brain, I guess, anyway.' "'A detective,' says I. "'Correct,' says Biddle. "'I'll have to turn you over to the sheriff.' "'Let's see you do it,' says I. "'And I grabs Biddle by the throat,' "'and half throws him out the window, "'but he pulls a gun and sticks it under my chin, "'and I stand still. 
Then he puts handcuffs on me and takes the money out of my pocket. I witness, says he, that they're the same bank bills that you and I marked, Judge Banks. I'll turn them over to the sheriff when we get to his office, and he'll send you a receipt. They'll have to be used as evidence in the case. All right, Mr. Biddle, says the mayor. And now, Doc Wahoo, he goes on, why don't you demonstrate? Can't you pull the cork out of your magnetism with your teeth and hocus-pocus them handcuffs off? Come on, officer, says I, dignified. I may as well make the best of it. Mr. Mayor, says I, the time will come soon when you believe that personal magnetism is a success, and you'll be sure that it succeeded in this case, too. And I guess it did. When we got nearly to the gate, I says, We might meet somebody now, Andy. I reckon you better take him off, and... Hey, why, of course, it was Andy Tucker. That was his scheme, and that's how we got the capital to go into business together. Thanks for joining us for these two O. Henry stories at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. We bring new stories every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and Sunday at noon Eastern, at noon Eastern Time. November is Sweeps Month, everyone. If you could get one person to follow our show at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, whether they have Apple phones or Android, we would appreciate that very, very much. And that'll help us in a big way going into next year. Thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate you being with us. Please share our show with others. Stay safe. And we'll be back soon. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.